Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 61. Antony and Cleopatra. When Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC, the people sighed. After years of civil war, there'd finally been peace, even if it had been a peace imposed by an all-powerful dictator. Now it seemed there would be more civil war. The people were right. The senators who had killed Caesar had not given enough thought to what would happen next. As we will see many times in our story, if a powerful leader is assassinated and there is no plan, then chaos is the result. Gaius Octavianus was in Epirus when he learned of Julius Caesar's assassination. As we've heard, he was prone to illness and nobody took him too seriously. He had, though, a number of advantages that would give him the upper hand in the coming years. He was cunning and persuasive, he was highly intelligent, and he had one of the most useful best mates a leader could wish for. Marcus Agrippa was a very fine soldier and leader of men. Despite only being the same age as Octavian, he would prove to be effective beyond his years. In the spring of 44 BC, Octavian arrived at the house of our old friend Cicero. He seems to have charmed the senator, as Cicero reported the young man was completely devoted to him. He did note, though, that Octavian was calling himself Caesar. This was something he was completely entitled to do, given he was Julius Caesar's heir, but it stuck in Cicero's throat. It seemed to him as if a cult was being formed around the dead man. This, thought Cicero, was not a good sign for those who were looking forward to the reinstatement of the Republic. Mark Antony, though, was causing Cicero far more worries. Caesar's right-hand man had taken northern Italy as his domain. Brutus and Cassius had been sent into the east into unimportant jobs. A commission had been set up by Antony to distribute lands to Caesar's veterans. All in all, it seemed to Cicero that Mark Antony was a bigger threat to the Republic than the new, young Caesar. In 43 BC, the Republic had its last chance. Two new consuls were elected, neither of them being Mark Antony. Cicero still saw Antony as the greatest threat, but Octavian took a, took a step towards illegality when he declared he would avenge Caesar's murder. This was against what Antony had declared when he'd read Caesar's last wishes. Now, though, he didn't want to be seen as anything other than 100% behind his old master, so he too declared that Caesar must be avenged. Cicero stirred up anti-Antony feeling in a number of letters. Antony struck back. He informed a public meeting in Rome that Cicero had been one of the leading conspirators against Caesar. Cicero looked for a powerful ally, both in the fight against Antony and the fight for the Republic. He chose the sickly 19-year-old who went by the name of Caesar. Looking back on the past from our position of knowledge, this seems like a crazy idea. Hindsight, though, prevents us from understanding what was going on at the time and how Cicero must have been feeling. Mark Antony was a known quantity, known for carrying out acts which were not in the tradition of the Republic. Octavian was an unknown quantity. Maybe he would use his posthumously adoptive father's name to save the Republic. To us, this seems like far-fetched wishful thinking. To Cicero, it must have seemed worth a punt. In January 43, Octavian was elected to the Senate. Traditional rules out of the window so the Republic could be saved. Bad idea? Yep, of course. But you can't blame Cicero for giving it a go. In April 43 BC, the two sides finally met in battle. Octavian and the consuls for the year were on one side, Mark Antony on the other. 
Unfortunately for Cicero, the Senate and the Republic, both consuls were killed. Their army, though, was victorious. Octavian seized his chance. In August, he, completely illegally and without any thought for the Republic, marched into Rome with his troops. There he forced the Senate to elect him consul. He was only 20 years old. On becoming consul, he slightly amended his name. And what did he amend it to, I hear you say? Well, Octavian's new moniker was a sure sign of things to come. He called himself, simply, Gaius Julius Caesar, although we will continue to refer to him as Octavian. Surely nobody could be under any illusions now. Surely it was clear the new Caesar wanted what the old Caesar had had. It must have been abundantly clear, even to Cicero in November of that year. Octavian, the new Caesar, made an agreement with the old Caesar's henchmen. He agreed to work with Mark Antony and an ageing senator called Marcus Lepidus. The three men formed an alliance which we now know as the Second Triumvirate. The three were given consular powers in Rome, but also proconsular powers in the provinces. This meant they had power over virtually everything. Cicero despaired in Rome. Brutus and Cassius raised armies in the east to take on this new team. The triumvirs showed their hand quickly. They produced a list of senators and equites who were to be put to death. The list was known as the prescriptions. Something similar had been carried out by Sulla many years earlier, but this was on a more brutal scale. Poor, honourable, deluded Cicero was of course on the list. The great man had already declared against Antony, and he made a comment about Octavian that got back to the young man. It's never a good idea in dangerous times to speak even in private against a powerful man. Cicero remarked to a colleague that Octavian, the young little fellow, must be given praises, honours and then the push. Poor Cicero was killed by a centurion and his head and a hand were nailed to the rostrum in the forum. Many great words had come out of his mouth in this great place. None would do so again. Mark Antony and Octavian marched east in 42 BC with an enormous army and took on the equally huge force of Brutus and Cassius. The so-called liberators, the final defenders of the Republic, were beaten and both died. Antony achieved much personal glory, while Octavian hid and claimed to be too ill to fight. Antony stayed in Greece for a while, gathering round him new admirers. Octavian went back to Rome. Ever the politician, he knew the capital would be the place to be. Maybe Mark Antony wasn't planning for a showdown with his new young ally. Octavian, though, most certainly was. He had his end game in mind and wanted to be sure as much as possible was in his favour. Octavian fought against Antony's brother Lucius while Antony was in the east. Another potential foe, though, was more worrying. Sextus Pompey, surviving son of Pompey the Great, was in control of Sicily and Sardinia and had a formidable navy behind him. Octavian thought carefully about what to do and came up with the same plan he'd come up with last time. He arranged to meet with Antony and reaffirmed their alliance. In the autumn of 40 BC, they met at Brundisium and restated their pact. In the couple of years before this, though, Mark Antony had been busy. He'd travelled to Egypt and fallen for the now 28-year-old Cleopatra. The Queen of Egypt was bringing up a son, Caesarion, son of Julius Caesar. By the time Antony left, she was also carrying a pair of twins, Cleopatra and Alexander. There are many lurid stories about Antony and Cleopatra. 
Shakespeare wrote another of his plays about the eventually doomed lovers. Some of his words are based on the accounts of the historian Plutarch, so they may not be as far from the truth as some of Shakespeare's histories. Antony and Cleopatra lived the high life in Alexandria. The details are not necessary in this historical podcast, but do make excellent reading. At Brundisium, though, Mark Antony had to return to reality. Despite having twins in Egypt, he married Octavian's sister, Octavia. Octavian himself married Scribonia, a relative of Sextus Pompey. Opinion is divided as to whether he did that this to ally with Pompey or to split Pompey's family. Given the way things turned out, the latter is more likely. The second triumvirate emerged intact from the meeting at Brundisium and Sextus Pompey was next on Octavian's list. Octavian was given control of all of the western provinces, including the territory now occupied by Pompey. Mark Antony was allocated all of the east. Poor old Marcus Lepidus was given only North Africa. Mark Antony took the opportunity afforded to him by Octavian's trouble with Pompey. He travelled east to Greece, from where he wanted to oversee the war he had recently started with the Parthians. His great mentor, Caesar, had been planning war against Parthia when he was assassinated. Mark Antony wanted to be seen as the real heir to the great man. He'd already moved in on Cleopatra, the great man's former lover. A huge popular victory in the east would show the people that he truly was Caesar number two. The real Caesar number two, if we discount Cleopatra's son, was bogged down fighting Sextus Pompey for three years. During this time he did one thing which would have a lasting effect on Rome. He divorced his new wife Scribonia in order to marry the love of his life. Livia Drusilla was from one of the most revered ancient families of Rome. At this time she was already married to a man called Tiberius Claudius Nero, but he had fled to Pompey's camp to avoid the prescriptions. In fact, Livia was pregnant with their second son. She already had a two-year-old called Tiberius. The little boy would grow up and eventually become Rome's second emperor. Tiberius Claudius Nero was divorced and Octavian and Livia were married. They would be married for more than 50 years. Octavian finally defeated Sextus Pompey in a massive naval battle in 36 BC. Or, more accurately, Marcus Agrippa defeated Sextus Pompey in a massive naval battle. After a couple of years of getting bogged down, Octavian made Agrippa consul in 37 BC and gave him command of the forces. Agrippa was a brilliant naval commander and Sextus Pompey was utterly defeated. Pompey was put to death a year later. In the east, things went well for Mark Antony. The war against the Parthians was proceeding successfully. He met up again with Cleopatra and another son was born. It was this, though, that would prove to be his downfall. Mark Antony was married to Octavia, sister of Octavian. Octavian, secure now that Sextus Pompey was no more, began to represent Octavia as Antony's abandoned wife. His fellow triumvir had fallen for an eastern temptress and left his virtuous Roman wife. This was morally unacceptable, said Octavian, and showed that Mark Antony was not a true Roman at heart. The third of the triumvirate, Lepidus, had tried to oppose Octavian in the west. He was dealt with quickly and sent into retirement. He was allowed to keep the office of Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest. Really, though, he disappeared into obscurity, probably grateful to still be alive. Mark Antony won many battles in the east, but the war as a whole didn't go that well. 
He lost over 30,000 soldiers to the cold and starvation as they retreated from a defeat. In 34 BC, he managed to score a victory in Armenia. The celebration of this victory, though, was the last straw for Octavian. It is said that Antony and Cleopatra sat on golden thrones while he gave her more and more territory. Their twins were given the titles the Sun and the Moon. Julius Caesar's son, now 17 years old, was given the title King of Kings. Back in Rome, Octavian used his very presence to win favour with the people. He charged Agrippa with improving the city and turning it into a capital fit for a mighty empire. The drains and sewers were upgraded and other important public works were carried out. The public buildings were improved and made to look more magnificent. Octavian and Agrippa fought some campaigns in Illyria, making the borders of Italy safer. All of this was done to ensure Octavian's popularity with the Roman people, so that a civil war with Mark Antony would be more palatable and he would have the bulk of the population behind him. By 35 BC, he was confident enough to declare himself Imperator. This doesn't have the meaning we might give it. It doesn't imply that Octavian was declaring himself to be an emperor. The word simply meant he was the unrivalled commander. Octavian was careful to continue the fiction that he was operating entirely legally within the rules of the Republic. In 32 BC, Octavian felt strong enough. He asked all of Italy to swear an oath of allegiance to him, and then he declared war. Octavian was too clever to declare war on a fellow Roman. Instead, the declaration was made against Cleopatra, the evil Eastern Queen. He claimed to have found Mark Antony's will, which contained even more concessions to the Queen of Egypt. This couldn't be allowed, and war with Egypt was therefore fine and legal. It was by no means a foregone conclusion that Octavian would win the war. Antony had more legions at his disposal than the young Caesar, and he also had 300 senators who fled Rome to join his side. After a few battles, Octavian and Agrippa raised a huge fleet and moved against Antony. Octavian wanted a quick battle and tried to get Antony to come out and fight, but he wouldn't. Unfortunately for Antony, his forces became ill with plague and some of his senatorial friends deserted and changed sides to fight for Octavian. Many of his old friends were upset that a woman, Cleopatra, was so obviously leading the war. Mark Antony and Cleopatra lined up their troops on the western coast of Greece. Antony's navy was moored offshore. Agrippa took Octavian's fleet over to Greece and managed to blockade Antony off the Greek coast. Antony tried to break out and flee to Alexandria, but he didn't have enough ships. He only had 200, and Agrippa had more than 400. Agrippa sat and waited for Antony to attack, and when he did, the great sea battle, called the Battle of Actium, was underway. In the heat of the summer sun, Agrippa sank more than 40 of Antony's ships, and those who were not sunk, fled. Cleopatra and Mark Antony escaped. Antony to Greece, and Cleopatra to Egypt. Before long, they had both managed to retreat to Alexandria. Antony's remaining soldiers offered to surrender to Octavian and he received their surrender graciously, saying he was going to treat them as if they were on the winning side. Octavian then made preparations to invade Egypt and finally defeat Antony and Cleopatra, who were trapped there. Cleopatra tried to plead with Octavian for her own life by betraying Antony, but Octavian refused to listen. Octavian took his huge army to Egypt and invaded. Mark Antony didn't have much of an army left, and the rest of his navy surrendered immediately. 
When his army saw this, they turned and fled, and Mark Antony was all alone, tired and scared, with nobody left to fight for him. He wounded himself, not quite fatally, and asked to see his beloved queen one more time. According to a doctor called Olympus, Cleopatra was hiding in her mausoleum, and Antony, half dead, was placed on a stretcher and hauled up on ropes by the queen and some of her maids. He died there in the mausoleum. Octavian entered the mausoleum and ostentatiously wept over the body of his dead rival, as was correct form. He had Cleopatra taken into custody, ready to be shipped to Rome to be one of the live exhibits in the inevitable triumph. Cleopatra, though, managed to escape this final indignity. There are varying reports of how she died, but it's generally accepted the weapon of suicide was a snake, or maybe two. Two of her maids died beside her. Octavian had won the war, just as he always assumed that he would. There was no one to challenge him left in the Roman world. In hindsight, it's quite clear the Roman Republic was dead. In fact, it had probably died many years earlier. It's the defeat of Mark Antony in 31 BC, though, that history marks as the traditional date of the end of the Republic and the beginning of imperial rule. Despite it being a bit arbitrary, we will stick with tradition for our story, and we can now lay to rest the Roman Republic. Octavian had a bit of clearing up to do before he could be completely safe. In particular, there was the question of Caesarion. The young man was the actual son of Julius Caesar. He, Octavian, was only the adopted son. It was clear to the leader of the Roman world that Caesarion would soon be a rival for power, and Octavian was not keen on rivals for power. Famously, he turned to one of his closest advisers, probably Marcus Agrippa, and spoke his mind. Two Caesars are one Caesar too many, he said. Caesarion was put to death. Mark Antony's oldest son was also killed, but the rest of the children were allowed to live. Probably Octavian realised they were too young to be of any danger, and that he would be too secure in his rule before they grew up. Antony's daughter with Octavian's sister Octavia would have a big part to play in the future of the new imperial family, as we will see in a coming chapter. Octavian was now the greatest leader the world had ever known. This was even more remarkable because Octavian had been very ill during his life and hadn't been expected to live too long. When he became supreme ruler of the empire, he was 33 years old. Next week, we will see Octavian become Augustus and we'll see how he solidifies and improves his growing empire. Until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.